Okay, well, good morning and welcome back as we finish up this lesson. Good morning. Good morning. The, and I'm not a two-person group. There's actually like... Good morning. There we go. There's another person. And there's one that has dangly things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. Um, yeah, I did warm up a little bit here when we turned the fans off. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> Boy, I gotta pull that boot out of my mouth, man. <laughs> so we're gonna pick up here to review kind of where we left off. We're talking about the millennium. Um, and it's been a couple weeks since we got together, which kind of makes this difficult for us, but that's okay. So to review, the events that take place during the thousand years on Earth... Um, are on earth the righteous will be in heaven and the, all the wicked are dead satan and his demons are bound to this dark and desolate earth and their work of deception is interrupted in heaven the redeemed take part in a judgment process and experience growth both intellectually and spiritually with christ as their teacher so cool little question has anybody here actually heard i mean we've talked about a little bit through our discussions but that idea of like during the thousand years when we're going to be in heaven, that we will experience growth, both intellectually and spiritually. Wouldn't that idea kind of contradict or maybe like challenge certain people's beliefs? Like once you're in heaven, like you're perfect. It's like, we're, we're good. Like we know all things. Because we always hear the, the cliche, you know, what happened? Oh, their work here is done. There you go. I've always been under the impression that learning begins then. Ooh. That we're going to be alive forever. We're going to be ambassadors to other worlds. We're going to go and, and you know, and you're going to be learning from everything that you touch and see and interact with. It's, you know, you're not going to have all the answers. And I think that's why we're going to spend a thousand years in heaven. Yeah. Really investigating. Yeah. That's good. Um, jumping down to the next paragraph, it just kind of says, you know, after the thousand years are over, the Bible in Revelation 20 then then kind of transitions to say that all the wicked are resurrected. They come back to life and are subject to Satan's clever deceptions. And I, I really like this point, just as they always have been. That's a cool little point in there, isn't it? So, you know, it's like their life on earth stopped and then they slept for a long time and then they were resurrected right where they left off and then they keep going like that's the imagery that i get when i hear that just as they have been the same heart same everything yeah yeah right there someone if you're willing read revelation 27 through 9. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. All right. This is war, huh? Anybody here seen the movie uh, The Lord of the Rings trilogy? Anybody see that? Mm -hmm. I just have this imagery of like I, I don't know the names of the places or whatever but like the whole army of like orcs I guess come to attack like in the five armies the Helm's Deep Some, I think so and you just like it just paints this scene of like mm -hmm. chaos yeah right that's what I see crazy 
So a little biblical interpretation. What do you guys think of the author's interpretations of like what the four corners of the earth mean? The camp of the saints, the beloved city. Anybody have any issues with that? Or does it all make sense to you? Well, the camp of the saints is measured to be like 400 miles cubed. Hmm. Hmm. Cubed. So it's a massive encampment, but compared to everyone that has ever lived on Earth, Sands of the sea, man. outside of the, out of the gates, probably seems small. But you're going to be able to see it for miles. Yeah. So Revelation 21, 2 says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from, from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Um, cool fun fact. The Bible opens with a marriage, Adam and Eve, and it ends with a marriage. All the way through that idea of New Jerusalem, bride, and everything. Fun fact. So, if we read verse, reading verse 1 of chapter 21 makes it sound like the city comes down after the new heavens and earth were created. But that makes no sense. Because the city is obviously already on earth before that, according to chapter 20, 7 through 9. The problem is that when the New Testament was divided into chapters, the chapter break was mistakenly put in the wrong place. When John begins with, and I saw, as in verse 2, it means he is looking at entirely new scene or vision, as in this case in chapter 21. Chapter 21 should have begun with verse 2 instead of verse 1, which really belongs in chapter 20. What do you think of that? You know, he kind of throws that little caveat in there. Why is that important for us? Or any person who reads the Bible, really? What do you think, Angel? As it states earlier in the Bible, uh, in this lesson, in this book, um, you know, it talks about, you know, how there's even just a simple piece of punctuation can change the entire meaning of an entire thought process of a situation. Um, you know, there's, I, I can't answer the question why, but, but I know there's just like other parts of the Bible, just that one piece of punctuation in the wrong place. Maybe grammatically, when they were trying to translate it, it wasn't grammatically prudent to do it because it could change the meaning. You know, I don't, I, I can't, I'm just going to shut up. Yeah, well, one good example was when Jesus was on the cross and he told the, 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 the thief to pay. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, we covered that. And people, we're talking about that. People think that today, you know, that he actually went to heaven, you know, or that he was going to be in heaven, where basically he was saying, I'll tell you today, you know, mm -hmm. today, eventually you will be in heaven. So if you think about back in the day, back in the day, when you heard Revelation <clears throat> for the first time, right, keyword there, heard it for the first time, because it was written as a letter that somebody came to the churches and said, all right, listen up. And they read it. There was no chapters. There was no verses. It was just a, a constant thought from beginning to end. And so, like, if you were to do that, you can't... So, can you go back? What was that bit about the New Jerusalem piece or whatever? Like, a chapter ago, like, you can't... You couldn't do that. It was just you were listening to someone just read to you 
this 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 letter. Which, by the way, if you read the book of Revelation and you're an average reader, I think it takes four hours, something like that, to read it straight through. That might be a little long. Um, I've not done it. I've wanted to. It sounds kind of fun, actually. But it uh, you come away with a much different idea of this, much bigger concept for sure. Um, interesting, this is kind of fun, there at the top of 118, where he talks about the references uh, to Gog and Magog in chapter 20. That's, uh, it's a symbolism for the enemies of God's people from ancient times, and he references Ezekiel, uh, 38 verse 2. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshes, and Tubal. I never knew that. This goes way down to pre-flood type of stuff. Right. And that next paragraph, Gog means the chief prince or leader of the enemies of Gog or the, the enemies of God's people. And Magog is the land that contains the people who follow God. So in Revelation, Satan would be Gog, and his nation of wicked followers are Magog, who under the leadership of Satan come up and fight against the beloved city. But check this out. I have an issue with the lesson here. I'm going to get on my soapbox. Someone read the last sentence in that paragraph. To read more than this into this prophetic text would be no more than speculation and should be avoided. Now, I love this book, and I think this author's great, but I'm not okay with that sentence. Let me talk from that other side of the coin. Sure. Um, we have no biblical answers to go beyond that, huh? beyond what has been spoken. Okay. We have no idea other than we have an, a very good understanding that it's Satan and mm -hmm. all the people that has chosen to walk with him and angels and all that mm -hmm. the, the mass and the earth of which they spoiled and this is you know to, to read into more than what has been written is fantasy because mm -hmm. we don't know and I don't, I don't disagree with what you said there. The, the, the minor issue that I have is that in a world where people are conditioned to just simply follow authority, obey what the priest, teacher, pastor, whatever doctor says without actually thinking, I have a little bit of an issue because like that verse basically says, and the author of the book said it, so you don't need to think about it anymore. Right, like it, it has with it the connotation that you don't don't think about it anymore. It's been give, the answer has been given you. No more thought is necessary. Right, and that's the that's the minor issue I have with it because like you don't ever hear Jesus saying anything like that. He's always saying, "Search me." You know, like like test, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, he's always he's always saying, "Come, let us reason together. Ask me questions." You know always open to saying it's okay to doubt it's okay to ask questions it's okay to explore right. well it, you know and we're skirting a, a very important sure. subject and that is 
do people believe the scripture is the word of God mm-hmm. or the word of man? Mm-hmm. Trying to be the word of God. And I'm under the absolute impression because this book has been so, uh, the 66 books have been so persecuted. Through the Dark Ages, they almost eradicated all written. And they were close. They were very close. And it's the only work that, you know, basically has survived a persecution event. And and it's it's and it's continuum. I absolutely believe it's the word of God. Same. Same. But you know, when reading this, there are a lot of people in our faith mm-hmm. that and walk faith that don't believe that. They believe it's failed man. It's probably mostly accurate. Mm-hmm. I don't know. They keep doubting it, but they found the Hittites. You know what I mean? The things mm-hmm. like that that only the Bible referenced. Mm-hmm. And, um... Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's jump more through this because now we're going to get the final, the final piece to this whole millennium and that is the the Great White Throne Judgment. This is a big one where I think a lot of people can struggle with some things. So as we just kind of move through this, I just encourage you all to Read with me, ask questions, we'll point out some stuff, and we'll wrap the lesson up with this whole section here. So, someone read first Revelation 20, 11 to 12. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face face the earth and the heavens, and the heaven fled away. There was found no place for them, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Mm. Okay, so here we go. We jump into it. The righteous are there, all the dead are there, and the book of life is opened. There's the Son of Man hanging out. The scene is set. Everyone's alive who has ever been on earth, all alive the same time from Adam to Cain killed Abel Cain the first murderer to the very last murderer which would be Satan himself think about that idea right everyone is there inside the walls of the beloved city would be God the Father the Son the Holy Spirit with the loyal angels and with them would be hopefully all of us in here in this room and everyone else who ever was alive who had a trusting relationship with God. So, Isaiah 40, verse 5, Prophet Isaiah says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This prophecy will be fulfilled at the close of the millennium, at the great white throne. The glory of the Lord that will be revealed to them there is more than God's beauty and majesty. Note what Moses says when he asked to see the Lord's glory. So I really like how the author put this in here. When he kind of dug into what God's glory is. Um, Someone read those two passages for us. And he, Moses, said, Please show me your glory. And he, the Lord, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. In Exodus 34, 6, 7. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, 
The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So, we've got a little, a little description of what God's glory is, right? So what do you think of that? Moses said, show me your glory. God says, I'll show you in essence. I'll show you my character, my nature. Because in the Bible, we talk about this a lot. The original language of the Bible, name, is a reference to a person's, it's, it's more than a person's title, right? My name is Charlie. Your name is Lola, right? Your name is treasurer of the church. It's a title, whatever it could be. But it means their character, their nature. So God's infinitely merciful, good, righteous, and gracious nature or name is the glory of the Lord he wishes all of us to see. Thoughts about that? Well, I agree with the author. I don't have anything to add. From a, from a wicked perspective, think about that, though. Like, God is majestic. He is glorious in, the, in this sense of, like, beauty and power and all of these things. But, but his glory is defined by his nature. So imagine for the wicked, it, it kind of starts building this scene of, like, so, when Reve and we're going to get to it in the lesson, when all the wicked, including Satan, kneel before God and say, yep, acknowledge him as Lord and Savior, like that's not as a result of seeing how majestic God is or how powerful he is. It's a result of seeing how good he is. So the, that paragraph there that there, the truth about God's character, his righteousness, goodness, and love will clearly be seen by all. God's great name will be vindicated. No one will any longer doubt or question God's character or purposes. Um, all will bow in agreement, even Satan. And so the scriptures will be fulfilled, Revelation 14, 10, 11. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. The only difference is some will be inside the city bowing to worship him, and some will be outside the city bowing to worship him. If you're outside the city, is it, do you bother about worshiping him? Why bother? Well, they get up and they attack the city, but kind of like when, you know, you're having a hard conversation and let's say you are siding on the other side, but you can get that realization that, you know what, you're right. You got me. You know, you got me, right. In Philippians 2, 10, 11, the Bible says, at the name, which is the gracious character of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth. And of those under the earth, that's referring to the unrighteous dead, right? And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the Bible like really does make the case, you know, describes this scene. 
To us, it may not make sense. Because we're still in process, right? We're still... But if you look, we just read Matthew last night, Sarah and I, chapter 17. We read about on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus was transfigured. His form changed. Moses and Elijah showed up. And Peter, James, and John fell to their knees and faces and said, You are the Lord God. They worship him. They acknowledge that he is the Lord God, just like that. And I see that, like, kind of an interesting thing. And these three dudes, especially Peter, man, this was before he pulled out his sword and cut off a person's ear and cussed and swore, you know, betrayed Jesus. Like, very much motivated by sin nature. And he now confessed that Jesus is Lord. I can imagine, well, my, my imagination makes it seem almost like, you know how our senses are, we can sense fear, we can sense mm -hmm. danger, we can sense goodness, and, and some, you know, someone's being truthful or not, whatever. For people to suddenly proclaim all of these things, you are good, gracious, whatever, what kind of sense that is. Mm. I mean, it's amazing mm. if, you, if you think about it, how they picked all those things up from, from him passing by or from him being there, mm -hmm. you know? And mm -hmm. it's just like, it blows my mind. Hmm. It's the spirit, it's life. Yeah, maybe just like your, your the energy. Yeah. And that's how I view God, it's just a ball of energy. No doubt. But the Bible does say he dwells in unapproachable light. Mm -hmm. So check out the last paragraph there on 120. Um, this is an important piece. That as those outside the city look at Jesus seated on the great white throne, they will clearly see the contrast between God's unconditional love for all and the self-centered love of the sinner. Because imagine this. Imagine for me one second. If you are outside the city and you were looking into the city, seeing God sitting on the throne, what's between you and God? There's a wall, as, as Revelation describes it. There's gates in the wall. And what are the gates doing? The gates are open. So you're sitting on here on the outside looking through an open gate. The only thing preventing you from going in is your own choice. Looking at God. And I think that's a that's a key piece to like really convict this whole concept of saying, wait a minute. God's not keeping me out. He never has kept me out. Even now he's not keeping me out. some point you have to be honest with yourself and then when you you know you live a life of rebellion you don't listen to rules you you know you know what i mean it's just like you you skirt things right and then all of a sudden you're going to change you're not going to change right and that's what the author points out here is we continue that paragraph as they look at jesus they will remember every sin they have committed they will see just where their feet diverged from the path of right, just how far pride and rebellion have carried them in violation of God's law of love. The blessings perverted, the messengers of God despised, the warnings rejected, 
the waves of mercy beaten back by their stubborn, hardened heart. Then, with an overwhelming sense of remorse and self-condemnation, they realize there is no hope, that the wages of sin is death. The final end of the wicked will be studied in the following lesson. But in that moment, you can kind of see it. Psalms 9, verse 16. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. What's the judgment he executes? Right here's the answer. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. God's character is revealed in how he judges when he says... God's judgment doesn't determine if a person's wicked or lost or saved. God's judgment accurately reveals the reality of their own choice. I love that verse. He executes judgment. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. But Satan goes around telling everybody that it's God you need to be afraid of. God's going to judge you one day. You need to be afraid of that. You can kind of see the two different opposing views, can't you? Yeah. Back up just here a second. Sure. So... That last paragraph of 120, and going over to 121, mm -hmm. I, I, I've been told years ago that, let's see, is, it, is this sort of the, the part though where you kind of go through, you, you have the, the your life has been rewound and you're watching everything real quick. Mm. What you've done. And I've been told that isn't that, that isn't what the, the book of judgment is supposed to do. And am I confusing a couple things here? Or am I in the right am I barking up the right tree here? I would look at the other side of that coin is that the people see when God reached out to them and they said no. Not so much as they're reliving all their faults. They know their faults. They know exactly what they did in their life. But it's more of being reminded of when God did the outreach to them. If you think about like in a, the way I, the way I look at it this way, you know, in a recovery circle, there's a step, you know, you take a, a fierce uh, moral inventory of yourself. And so you're going back through and, and you're just going through this process of your memories and your behaviors and your actions and people you've hurt and, and all these things. And through that process, for those who have gone through it, the more time you spend there, the more stuff gets uncovered. You know, the, the deeper you go, the more you find. And it's like, because like your mind forgets things. You have lots of stuff that you just, you buy either by choice or just by circumstance, it just goes away. But then as you're going through this process, more comes up and you and it might even be six months later, you know, you're just driving down the road, minding your own. And all of a sudden, boom, you're like, whoa, I haven't thought about that in 30 years. And you add that to your inventory. Right, so what I'm what I'm seeing, Joe, to answer your question is Jesus is the truth, and and the whole purpose of that step is you're getting to the truth of your behavior, your history, your actions. That's the whole point because truth, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So when you 
live your life, and I like how I word that out, in denial and selfishness. And then you're looking. You're looking at the source of truth, unfiltered, unveiled. It's like, it's a Lola, I'm going to reference back a few weeks ago. It's that chemical reaction that you can't prevent, you know? It, it's just, it's design law. It's the natural consequence. When you expose, when truth exposes a lie, the result is pain in the person. The result is pain. You feel pain because you realize what has happened. And so the way I look at it, Joe, is these people are now looking at the source of truth and they can't hide from it anymore. And so in a moment, all of that hits in one hit. And they see all the times that someone tried to help them, that God intervened. It's, it's there. It's how they open. And they say in that moment, after experiencing all of this, they say, you're right. And then they give up their life to work with their own hands. And then I think this kind of points to it there, the middle of page 121, middle paragraph, the purpose of the second resurrection is so that the universe may see that if the wicked are given a second chance, and are clearly shown all the evidence firsthand, so there can be no doubt or questions about God and His love, they still won't repent. We get a snapshot of that, don't we, in the Garden of Gethsemane? But just before they arrested Jesus, didn't He flash His divinity like, and everybody fell down? Oh, yeah. And they still got up and they still hung Him on a cross and killed Him. Mm -hmm. Right? There's some evidence to that. And this is where I think a lot of times people will get stuck here. Revelation 20, verse 9. And then fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Depending on your view of God, that can go two different ways, can't it? Well, it's not only to destroy the wicked. It's to destroy the, the product of their... You know, ruining yeah. the earth. Yeah. So we won't get into it deeply today because I think what the next several lessons here talk about the second death um, and what that actually is. So we're going to pause that conversation for the next upcoming um, weeks here. Because we can definitely spend a lot of time answering that question. So for those of you who are listening online, you have to wait <laughs> to get that answer, right? <clears throat> So the second to last paragraph we're not going to discuss today. Which one? The wicked suffer the horrible second death. After the great white throne judgment and the earth is cleansed by fire, God will create a new heaven and new earth. Right. So, I, I, I have a question with that too. Yeah. So. so the lesson gets to it, right? The next several. Okay, does it? Okay. Oh yeah, the next okay. three lessons right. actually. Okay. We're going to be talking about the second death and... And what's going on there? And so, absolutely. So, in other words, you'll be highly motivated to come to church for the next two weeks. <laughs> I tell you, from a science-motivated individual like myself, yeah. to be able to watch God create. Whoa, right? True that. 
So I'd like to review. At the close, the at the close, there should be a, another word in there. At the close of the millennium, there will be a second resurrection, the resurrection of the wicked. Satan deceives the wicked who surround the beloved city, intending to take possession of it. Then the great white throne judgment will take place, concluding with fire, which comes down from heaven, devouring the earth and everything in it. Then God will create a new heaven and a new earth where the righteous will live eternally. Just maybe to ease a couple people's minds, or maybe even to dangle a crumb for next week. God is described, we learned this in previous lessons, God is described as a consuming fire. God is fire. So where do the righteous live? In fire. In fire. In fire, in the presence of God. The Bible has described that when the presence of God that is described as fire, even though it's not, you know, our fire, like he can burn the house down fire, it consumes sin. So when the consuming fire of God comes out of the city, people willingly give up their lives. They don't want to live in the presence of God. They don't want to live in the fire. Because the fire isn't harming the righteous people. So I think that's a really interesting thing that we can kind of add to our discussions over the next couple of weeks when we really start unpacking it. Because next week, lesson 10, the title is The Lake of Fire. The Lake of Fire. So we're really gonna we're really gonna figure this out. And in essence, what Satan has the whole world believing that the place you don't want to go is a place of eternal burning. The Bible describes as the very presence of God. So we'll get into that more next week. So to finish up this lesson, the question is, where will you be in that final day? Will you be safe inside the city with Jesus or outside looking in? The same choice Moses gave God's people long ago is still available to God's people today. Deuteronomy 30, 19 through 20. I call heaven and earth as witness today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Final thoughts here before we wrap up. Any residual unanswered questions? Sarah, I see you over there like underlining. I just think it's interesting that um, Deuteronomy, that, you know, the last part of the verse is choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Um, you know, and it just reiterates the the power, right, that we have over, you know, future generations, right? Not just ourselves or even our own children, but like, you know, down the line, like if we choose to not choose carefully, right, and we don't choose blessing, we choose curse, we choose we don't choose life, we choose death, like that will also Potentially, you know, 
Plus other stitches that same kind of way. Future disciples. You know, and that's that's amazing that in our church, our mission statement is growing loving people by being loving people. And so if you think about that idea, that concept is we choose life as we grow to become a more loving person, the impact that that has on the next person and on our children and our families and then our community. It does that, doesn't it? It, it passes that down. That's cool. That's a great thought. Let's pray. God, I just hope and I pray that as we learn these things and as we gain a good understanding of your character that the people you bring into our lives that struggle with some of these bigger concepts and also struggle with an inaccurate picture of who you are that will remember these details and we thank you that your word even says it like for in that day your holy spirit gives us the words to speak and so i just pray that like we can add all of these things to our repertoire of knowledge that Number one, it will increase our own trust in you. And then number two, it helps equip us to be able to share this with others who are searching. Um, thank you for everyone's contribution to the conversation. And um, thank you for, for talking with us today. In your name we pray.